Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast today. I'm excited. You guys are going to love this. You know, we talk about evolution a bunch on the show and uh and it's just endless. Uh, you know, I've, I've done, uh, we're, we're over 350 episodes now and we, we regularly discuss evolution and there's still constantly, I'm, I'm coming across, uh, books and, and guests and research where I'm like, I've totally dropped the ball. How have we not covered say, all of the last uh, the origins of of uh life on this planet and we've, we've barely touched on that in the past and so uh this is another one of those uh, exciting episodes where we'll get to fill in a lot of gaps of really important stuff um that i'm shocked that i haven't covered in more depth um before but my guest today is henry g who is the author of the new book a very short history of life on earth 4.6 billion years in 12 pithy chapters. I very much enjoy that. And there's the book there if you're watching on YouTube. And oh, what's that? I'm. That's oh, it. That's nice. It's in German. Oh, as nice. you see, I don't look like that. Um, so why don't you tell me a little bit about your background? Cause you do, uh, you do quite a bit and this is your third or fourth book. Oh, loads, lots of books back into oh, really? history. I've always been writing books. Oh, yeah, well, I'm sorry. I've, you know, ever since I, I, I mean, after I, 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 um, after I finished my doctorate thesis, I, I, um, I was going around like a lost dog. So I immediately started writing books. Um, I'm a recovering paleontologist. Uh, and uh, while I was still in graduate school studying bones, I, by a a sequence of in totally unlikely circumstances, I ended up as a junior news reporter on Nature, the illustrious science journal yes. um, to which all scientists send their best work, although I should say that other science journals are available. Um, and uh, I was I was a junior news reporter from nothing. You know, I knew nothing. It was just the editor. Uh, I applied for a different job there, didn't get it. And the editor liked me and uh, we got on famously. Uh, and I was a junior news reporter. So I learned how to write pretty quickly. Um, you know what it is as a news reporter. They give you a story you have to about which you know nothing and you have to write about it and authoritatively. And they say, I say, when do you want the copy? They say, lunchtime, no pressure. So um, <laughs> so I learned, how to, I learned how to write about all aspects of science pretty quickly. But do I you, wanted to join the... Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'll let you continue. I have questions about that. Yeah, yeah. well, I was, I was hired on a three-month contract. Uh, um, it's the longest three-month contract anyone's ever had i coming up for 34 years but uh, not long after i joined I, I wanted to be part of the elite group of editors who actually select 
the tiny amount of manuscripts from the fire hose of research that gets squirted <laughs> at us. And they were keen to have a paleontologist on board because none of them like bones very much. So I said, please throw me a bone. So I've been doing that and, and some other things uh, uh, ever since then. Um, and I've been writing books on the side because, you know, you've talked to writers. You're, you're, you don't want to write. You're addicted to it. You have to do it. And uh, so for my whole for my whole adult life, I seem to be writing a book. Um, and uh, the latest one is just the latest one. And I'm already beginning to think of the next one, which is quite worrying because after I finish <laughs> a book, I say to my wife, I'm not going to write another no, damn book. And she never just again. smiles sweetly. <laughs> she says, smiles sweetly and says, yes, dear, of course not. Now, yes, go and have a lie down. Um, well, what's- so that that's what I've been doing. What what's the what's what are some of the major differences in in the approach to say getting an assignment to uh, write write for nature and then uh, taking in the uh, as someone who would love to write a, a book eventually it seems like a massive undertaking um, what what is kind of the difference in your process it must be dramatic. Well, you know, as a writer, you always write. And, you know, yeah. people ask me uh, for advice on how to be a writer. And I say, well, unless you're already writing things, you're probably not a writer. But the trick is to write something every day. It, has, it doesn't have to be a chapter of the great novel. It could be a social media post or a shopping list or something. But yeah. going to, when I, what, well, being in the back room at Nature, I'm not a writer. I'm an editor or rather oh, okay. I select right science i read the original science and i try and work out whether we would like to publish it or not but really having come to it from a, a science and a writing background i tend to evaluate scientific works as works of literature you know there should be a story in here there should be characters there should be an arc um there should be uh, beginning a middle and end it should conform to chekhov's rule of dueling pistols you know if there's a you know who said chekhov said if there's if they're dueling pistols on the mantelpiece in act one they should be fired by act three otherwise don't have them so um i tend to evaluate science as works of literature do they tell you something new and interesting and what is it and how convincing is it mm. um this came to me very starkly in my 30s when i'd already been at nature for a few years I'd always wanted to study uh, English literature at school. Now, in, in England, when you're about 16, 17, you study for your A-levels, advanced levels, and these are your exams you do to get to university. And you do three or four of them. And I was doing sciences. I was doing chemistry, physics, chemistry, maths, biology, because that's what I wanted to do, science. And I couldn't study English literature because there wasn't any time. So I thought, yeah, it's just books, right? I'll do that mm. in later life. Well, one day I woke up and I said, oh, my God, later life has arrived. And my wife <laughs> said, well, you better go sign up at the sign up at the local adult education uh, facility. So I did. Yeah. And with lots of other grown-ups, I learned about Jane Austen and Keats and Dickens and Shakespeare and Virginia Woolf, and it was fantastic. And I really got an appreciation of literature and not just reading books, but getting behind it and working out why people say the way they say it and when they say it, and um, and that really helped me in my job evaluating science. Although, so although actually in my actual job, I don't do very much writing except little memos for my colleagues. This is an interesting paper. What do you think? Um, 
it's a it's a useful thing to have a journalist's eye to to say what's the you know cut the cut the waffle what's the story here what what actually yeah. are you trying to tell me well, I I know that you uh, you you shared with me before we started recording that you had listened to, um, which at the time we're recording this was the most recent public episode uh, with Nicholas Coles, and toward the end of the episode, I, I I don't know if you heard the whole thing, but we talked a little bit about the uh, replication crisis and and touched oh, on gosh, the idea. Yes. Oh yeah, major uh, major problem. Yeah, and we we touched on the idea of of like kind of. It's sort of not as juicy to publish a non-finding, <laughs> you know. It, it's kind of it's a it's a big problem. It's the replication crisis. I mean, Nicholas is a psychologist, and you know, it's very particular in in the humanities. In fact, yeah. I think they've the humanities uh, and the social sciences they've kind of grappled with it more than the the actual hard sciences. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the, where the, the hard sciences, you know, with, where you're actually working with things rather than trying to get inside people's heads, you say, hey, but it can't be wrong. It's just facts, right? Well, no, uh, not quite. Um, they're also recipes. Like, how did you actually achieve this particular result? And right. science is so technically advanced and technically complex. And there's still so many little things that can go wrong in in experiments that um, what scientists there's a general movement and we like to think we're we're very much involved in it to get scientists to you know say to show all their data show all their information share the raw data on some public repository so people can go look at it. You know, in other words, you say that X equals Y, but show us the money. How did you get from one place to the other so that other people can go and reproduce it? Yeah. So it's true that it's not sexy to publish replication, um, uh, but there are two things. One is if you get people up front to show you all the stuff, then at least there's some chance that people might be able to do this without too much trouble. Mm. And second, in a way... All science is replicating others because to get from if you know to get to third base to extent the whole world already has to be at second base. So basically, you're replicating what you did at first base and second base to get to third base. If you see what I mean, so so they already has they're already starting from a point, and sometimes they have to establish their basics just to get to get to the start of what they're doing. Mm. And sometimes that's kind of taken as red, but it's usually back in the data somewhere. Um, so people are doing it for a bit, but you're absolutely right. The replication is a crisis because there's so many scientists, there's mm. so many scientific journals, there's so much competition for status and publication and tenure and all this messy social stuff quite away from the music of the ethereal spheres of science. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's a problem, and it's something we, we deal with all the time in nature. I mean, I have a problem. I deal with papers on paleontology, and it's usually about a fossil. You know, you can't replicate a fossil, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and it's usually in some museum somewhere. And and then after it's published, somebody goes to this museum and says, "Hey, Henry." That's what they say. That's what they call me because that's my name, Henry. They say, "Hey, Henry, <laughs> we went all the way to the Max Planck International Human Turnip Institute." And they wouldn't show us the fossil because the curator was on holiday or they gave us the runaround or something. Mm. So now what we do 
is thanks to the magic of te technology, you can do CT scans and get 3D data and um, 3D printing. And so people are encouraged to put files online so people can actually look at the fossil or as good as and maybe even produce a version of it at very high resolution in the comfort and safety of their own laboratory. Um, so even in paleontology, we're getting around that. But it is an ongoing problem, and it'll take a long time to solve. Mm. Now, one more question about writing. This one's a little more personal. So I I, I write regularly and have for a long time. But you're, supposed write, to say, you're supposed to say, I have a friend who's been writing. <laughs> is, is, is that what you're supposed to say? Why Why is that to detach yourself? Well, I remember at Nature, we, we, were all, uh, we all had a lecture from the guy who invented Second Life. And, uh, you know, the sort of virtual reality platform, which was, I don't, haven't heard of much about it for years. And a friend of mine, who's now quite a distinguished broadcaster, said to the, um, uh, said to the lecturer afterwards, you know, I've had a problem with this. I got stuck in a gothic porn dungeon and everyone laughed. I said, look, no, you're supposed to say I have a friend who got stuck in a gothic porn. But I'm sorry, Shane, please continue. No, no, good. Um, about writing. Amusing anecdote. So I had, uh, so writing stand-up is really, it plays to my strengths, which is I'm not a very organized person. You can kind of have an idea, uh, write down this half-baked premise and then you can either experiment with it on stage or especially early on in my career i would just really if there's a premise that i really liked i'd write and write on it but but that would be you know we're talking about somewhere between a 30 second joke and maybe at the very most a 10 minute long story or something like that and uh and and especially early on when I wrote a lot of short jokes, it was kind of like, okay, I can kind of put these in pretty much any order. Most of the order was determined by, all right, this is a really strong opener and then this is pretty good. And then here's a new thing I'm working on. I'll sneak that in on the middle and then better have a strong one to back that up. If that doesn't work and that's how I would organize things, then I started doing themed shows when I started putting science into my act and that needed to tell a story, as you say, a little bit more and have a little bit more of a linear structure. But it was still, the process is, mostly a given joke or something as say a minute or two and then i'm kind of i can kind of crowbar and a structure and outline and put that together whereas during covid i've started seriously thinking like writing for uh, a couple different book ideas and uh and it takes it takes a lot more discipline than stand-up does to write because i can write a stand up bit and like, okay, I got that. And I can use that until for, for ho however long I want until I record it and put it out publicly or whatever. And, uh, it, but with, with a book, it's just, um, I, I can, I can get the outline and I can get like a lot of the strong points and then filling in all of the other stuff is, is, uh, it, it it's hard well, for me I, to get I, in the yeah. rhythm. Well, I have to say, I have to hand it to you, Sean, for doing stand-up in the first place. I wouldn't have a clue how to go about it, how to get the material. I mean, I guess you must have a notebook or just be have an yeah. ear to everything that happens in the world. And you think, 
somebody, you've seen something funny, you've heard something funny, somebody said something to someone else, oh, I'll make a note of that. I can work that into material, but I've got to hand it to you. I mean, standing upside, on standing on stage like that, I mean, I've been in rock bands all my life, but I've usually got keyboards in front of me to to, um, to steer me from the, and uh, and uh, and although I it it's but I mean on stage I've been mean, organising material and the band is similar to organising you know the order of gags I mean the last band I was in had an excellent frontman although we had a set list he used to tailor it to the mood of the audience so mm. you know we hit them with lots of fast numbers and then we'd have a slow number because that would give them a chance to go to the bar and get some more drink, which would mean we'd sell more beer and we'd get booked for another gig from the landlord. And then he'd have some fast numbers. And, you know, it looked like we we're getting a bit, they were getting a bit drunk and lacrimose. So we'd do a smoochy number and, and so on. <laughs> yeah. But writing, there, there's no, there's no, you're probably going to be disappointed in this, but there's no one way of doing it. Uh, yeah. There was many writers as there are ways of writing and but you're already a writer because you're writing material and you're putting it in order and you have a beginning a middle and end so Mm -hmm. basically you just keep doing what you're doing now i used to worry how the hell do you write book well first of all you have to have a story and you have to have a story to tell whether it's fiction or non-fiction you have to have it's still a narrative arc um there still has to be a reason to if you're doing a long form thing, there still has to be a reason to engage the audience's interest. And, you know, you do this by varying the material. You have a few short jokes and then you have a slightly longer one, mm-hmm. um, but they're hooked in. And hopefully by the time you get to the longer one, they're invested in you and they get to know you. So they're going to have the patience to go to a longer one. And then you do a few more short ones or whatever. But basically there has to be a whole story. Otherwise it's a collection of short stories, which is fine. Um, and short story, that's another medium that's completely, I've tried it. It's very hard. Um, See, I think you're doing it. You just do it. Uh, uh, You mustn't mustn't think about it too much. You just got to do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, it's, I I think that I, I I think my first book that will come, uh, the, the thing that seems, the thing that I'm less excited about, but is the, most um doable is is you know like uh i've enjoyed you know these books like edge.org that put out like they ask a bunch of scientists a question and then it's like two to three pages on a subject i have an easy time putting (laughs) together two to three pages on a subject and then i have (laughs) and then i have a book that's a little bit more like a, a close comparison it'd maybe be animal farm or something like that and i'm very excited about yeah, that yeah. one but that one is like it's it's way out of my usual comfort zone and uh and it's 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 working different well, well, muscles well, and everything oh well what you what you need what you need then is if you've got a good idea your first your first thing to do is get an agent get a literary agent mm. uh and um uh i mean i've been with my agent since the last millennium and uh i will pitch an idea to her and i will send her a rough synopsis and then she will question me and question me and question me and pick holes it and pick holes in it and pick holes in it and i rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it until it's something that she feels she can put her name on to send to to pitch to a publisher Interesting. and uh that's that is no more true than with this book a very short history of life on earth mm. um because that was quite different from what i first imagined um i mean it happened I was uh, at 
nature, and I'd gone to interrupt my friend David Adam, who at the time was the, a news writer and wrote um, the leader column for Nature. And he'd written some very good psychology books, a couple. Uh, one's called The Man Who Couldn't Stop, about OCD, and it shows his own particular struggles with OCD. So they're, they're science, but it's very much got him at the centre. And he wrote another one called The Genius Within, about mind hacks, how to make yourself do better and performance and whether you could take drugs to make your mind. And he gets some and works them and sees how they work. So he's uh, he does works in psychology. And we would get together and we talk about the books we were working on. And um, I just written a kind of a textbook and he said what are you going to write next and I said I'm not going to write another book I mean he could which is what I always say uh, and uh, every time I finished a book and um, you know working on English literature our tutor said we're talking about Virginia Woolf she said she was a depressive manic depressive she was kind of bipolar you know she would always be very very cheerful when she started a book and very very depressed when she got to the end <laughs> I said look you don't have to be bipolar to feel like that if you that's just normal that's just <laughs> yeah. writing a book. Uh, and, uh, and then that's the only funny. way you can get another fix is to write a book write another book but um I said I wasn't going to write a book and David said to me Henry you've been at nature for decades and you've seen amazing papers on fossils pass over your desk you know i had the first feathered dinosaurs passed across my desk i had the hobbit creature from indonesia all sorts of amazing fossils that tell the story of the history of life have passed my desk why don't you write about those mm -hmm. so i went away and still protesting i wasn't going to write the damn book i went away and wrote the damn book but it wasn't the book that came out it was more of a kind of no-holds-barred, warts-and-all, tell-all, kiss-and-tell expose, not just of the fossils, but the people who found them and my travels to various parts of the world to interview them and uh, find out how the fossils came about and, uh, and, and lots of personal detail. And I told this to my agent and she said, hey, I'd be interested, you know, send me some chapters and I'll pitch it to somebody. And I said, well, no, not yet, because I'm talking about real people and I need to clear it with them before mm. I let this book go out of doors on its own. And she said, that's fine. Well, let me know. So I finished the book and it was called Let's Talk About Rex, A Personal History of Life on Earth. And uh, I sent it to all the people and they said it's lovely. But then I sent it to my parents, who are ever the, my harshest critics. And they read it and said, well, it's all very nice, dear. But who, apart from the people mentioned, are really going to care? So I said, hmm. And then I sent it to my agent, who is much more tactful, and said, well, basically, in here is a story about life on Earth. Cut out all the other stuff and just tell a story about life on Earth. Keep it very simple. You know, mm. tell the story, tell the narrative. Um, and it was interesting that she said that because for years I've been thinking, you know, at the back of my brain, hmm, it might be nice to tell a very simple book on the history of life on Earth. But I kind of put it at the back of my brain. But in, in the end, after all this circumlocution, that's what came out. So basically, mm. a lot of the problem of being a writer is you have to go through all these stages of complexity before the simple thing comes out that you should have written to begin with. But somehow mm. you have to go through all the other stuff to get there. You know, mm -hmm. it's the old story. You have to kiss a lot of handsome prints. Okay, no, that's the wrong one. Look, I should leave this to you, you're the comedian. You should be up. Oh. 
Oh, it's getting late. I need more coffee. You have to kiss a lot of toads before you get your handsome prince. That's the one. There we go. I yeah, shouldn't yeah. tell you jokes, your comedian. No, I'll go, I, I, yeah. uh, I, I, I do like, I've, I've read, I have read, um, I've read some science books that are, uh, you know, like a, a couple recently about uh, histories of pandemics and stuff where, where uh, they do read like detective novels, uh, uh, like your original mm-hmm. book, what you were originally going to be writing. And it does, it, I, I think, I think maybe it's not the easiest thing in the world to market necessarily, but, but as, as a huge science fan, I, I am really engrossed by hearing like where there was missteps along the way and breakthroughs and, yeah. and it, 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 and science is just so full of all of these. It really is like, like a detective story, you know, figuring out how well, to well, understand yeah, but, but the, the nature is, of reality. The thing is, you know, it's, um, you know, you look at a, a book and basically the book is the end result of a hell of a lot of heartache and problems <laughs> yeah. and quite different from the first draft. I mean, one right. of my favourite authors is Neil Gaiman and he wrote somewhere, basically he writes a book, he basically makes shit up. He just writes stuff. He just writes stuff kind of automatically and then he rewrites it, so he said, to give the impression that he knew what he was doing all along. Now, uh, some people write with a... I can't, I can't write mysteries. I've tried, but you yeah. have to have a kind of brain to do that. Now, I have a friend, an author called Brian Clegg, who's a science writer. He's a very good science writer, but he also writes mysteries and does all the plots for these kind of dinner party mystery games. And because he knows how to, he's got that kind of mind. And I said, how do you do that? Do you plot it out? He says, no, I just make it up as I go along, but he's got a very organized computer like mine. But I think what you do when anybody writes a book, some people plot it all out. Some people make it up as they go along. Sometimes you have some vague idea which will come before what. Um, it's usually a mixture of all three, but it's very important to have someone, an agent, who can, who's basically going to sell it for you. If, unless you're writing right. for yourself, which is basically the only person you should really write for. If you want other people to read it, you need a, a professional to read right. it. Another thing I say when people ask me to about writing is you must write as you would speak. Um, sometimes you write sentences and get caught up in all kinds of relative clauses and interesting little asides until you run out of breath. Yeah. And it seems great on the page, but when you read it out, you think, what is this gibberish? So yeah. it's always a good idea to read it out to an audience of housemates or pets or stuffed toys, or at least read it out to something. So it- pets and stuffed toys are good because they're not very critical, but they're very good audiences to read things to. Yeah. Um, and of course yeah. your friends and relations will either say it's complete shit but won't give a reason why or or they'll be say oh it's wonderful it's absolutely fabulous so you have to that's why i would say get after you started writing and you want something pitch it to an agent it's uh that's what you got to do i see um that's what i yeah. say to anybody who's got a book idea I, I I remember Christopher Hitchens saying that he would always he would always talk it out. For, that's how he would uh, he was a big believer in you you had to write in the style that you were talking. And he was a he was a very impressive yeah. and charismatic speaker as well as mm. and, and that came across in his writing as well. It was very funny and uh, everything too. So that's that's uh, but it's that's good interesting. to have someone to talk to because. Because sometimes, you know, I talk, uh, if I've got a trouble with a particular 
point. Sometimes, you know, I, I live near the beach and I go to the beach and I walk along the beach with my dogs. And if my son's back from college, we walk along and talk about usually anime. And um, we'll talk about, because he like, he's a medical student, but he likes to write as well. Mm. He's writing this completely insane theatre of this third novel, um, which he's been writing since he's about 14 and he keeps sort of refining it. But just by talking it out, you get, you find out the little holes and the little things where it doesn't work. And sometimes you get great new ideas just mm. by talking to somebody. Mm. Um, just by talking it through, something will occur to you. So it is, you know, I've never been to one of these writers' workshops and creative writing, but I know people who do and they get a great deal of benefit from it. Mm. So they go with a, a group of other writers and they each each week it's somebody else's turn to submit something and then they tear it to pieces and then they go to the pub. Well, but, you're, um, you're a delight to talk to. So for, th- thanks for indulging me and, in, and, uh, and hear, hearing a, a, a little bit of the background of, and, uh, the, the kind of breaking the fourth wall and going behind the scenes of how writing happens is something I'm super interested in, but we better talk about your, uh, your book. So 4.6 billion years in 12 pithy chapters. I love the word. I love how pithy the word pithy is too, by the way, it's, it's such yeah, a fun it's word. Got, it's, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's got a nice mouth feel to it. it really I can't does. say it well because I'm missing several teeth, but you know, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I was trying to keep it keep it short. Uh, some somebody said it, you know, it's uh, it actually looks quite a thick book. This book mm-hmm. would drive a Toyota beef, but um, <laughs> but then when you think about it, the history of life is very long, and if the yeah. history of life was keeping a a week per page diary, it would be too. 100 billion pages long or something so i've just sort of cut to the edited bits but actually i've given you a bonus because it's actually five and a half billion years because i actually take life from now to a billion years in the future that's called that's what we in that's what we scientists technically call making shit up Uh, yeah Um, (laughs) but um based on some uh, extrapolation of course a lot of it's making stuff up because science is never final i mean i've tried to base it as much as I can on the latest evidence. But what I'm doing is I'm telling a story uh, and I didn't want to interrupt. I didn't want to be didactic. I didn't want to talk down too much to the readers. I just wanted to like tell a bedtime story. It even starts once upon a time. Um, uh, Once upon a time, a giant star was dying and it became the supernova that produced all the stuff that we're made of. Well, Um, I I would love to start there because we actually haven't, um, I, I would say most of the time that we're talking about evolution on this show, it's been about the last billion years and often it tends mm. to skew pretty human centric, uh, as well. But, mm. but, uh, I, I would say something that we haven't covered a lot is exactly what you just said from, from the, uh, from the big bang to the origin of life on earth. Mm. And then when life started, that's, that's something that I would love if you could, uh, share. I mean, my book is, my my book is in the end human centric because it's a human story. I mean, if I were a a giraffe, I'd write a different story, but the beginning is quite the same. And my first chapter is so pithy that actually I tell kind of nine tenths of the history of life on earth before I get to page 14. And this is the reason it's partly because we don't know a great deal about it, but it does start some billions of years in the past with a giant star that is getting to the end of its life. And stars, especially giant stars, 
have a problem. They only live on a knife edge between two forces. One is the fusion furnace that creates the energy to inflate the star and the gravity that's trying to squash it in. And so the star is always a very delicate balance of forces. But after a while, the star runs out of hydrogen to fuse into helium. Now, it gets the most energy from doing that. And when it runs out of hydrogen, it has to fuse the helium to make carbon and other things. And this is more complicated and doesn't produce as much energy. And then it's burning its way, creating more and more elements until one day it is... um. It has all the energy of a wet lettuce leaf and the gravity wins. And the gravity, because a star is gig- well, I'm talking about stars much bigger than the sun. Because this star is gigantic, it will implode in a split second. Mm. Um, but the implosion creates such a huge, the implosion is the one thing. And imagine all that mass whizzing to the center in a second after millions of years. It just gets to the point where it literally can't hold it up anymore, and it goes over the edge and goes whomp right into the middle. Now, that's not the main thing. The main thing is the rebound. The rebound from this is the supernova explosion. All those things crammed together in a small space go, eh, and uh, and they do all sorts of chemical reactions about which I know nothing. And then there's this immense explosion in which the whole power of the star is just radiated out in, a, in minutes, and it's so bright that it can be seen across the whole universe. I mean, the most distant galaxies we only really know about because of supernovas. The rest of the galaxy we wouldn't even see was there. Um, But what happens with a supernova? It it creates two things. It creates a huge gravitational shock wave that goes through the vicinity. It will extinguish any life on any of its planets, if it has any, and all the planets within several light years around, once the light gets there, of course, um so this gravitational shock travels throughout the throughout space but also so does all the other stuff that it's made in its last in the la- in its old age all these chemical elements and some extremely exotic ones like uranium and iron and things that it's made in its final moments and these get spread across the universe tr- surfing this gravitational shock wave now, sometime later, because matter in space is not distributed uniformly, sometimes it's just really empty space and sometimes it's clumped together at an incredible density of one hydrogen atom per cubic metre. Um, and in these rather more dense regions of dust and ice and gas, the gravitational shock wave carrying its freight of exotic material like iron and uranium and silicon and aluminium will compress it together um, and gravity will work on anything, however small, but especially if it's larger. So when the cloud gets larger and more compressed, it kind of gets into a runaway process and um, it will start swirling around like a, you know, like a cinnamon Danish. And, And at the beginning is so compressed that hydrogen starts to fuse to create helium and produces heat and light. And that's a new star. That's our sun. That's mm. how it starts. And all the other bits of cinnamon Danish hanging around the other side, they condense to form the planets. Now, the planets weren't just like the system we have now. The solar system we have now is quite is quite orderly. Back in the end, it was kind of dodging cars. It was complete chaos. There was loads and loads of planets. 
Uh, Jupiter probably started much closer to the sun than it is now and moved out. Some other planets moved in and things kept knocking into each other. So we have our infant Earth, which is coagulating and um, all the heavy elements go to the middle, like iron and nickel, and form this white, red-hot core. Um, and all the heavy elements, like the, all the radio- radioactive ones, like uranium and thorium, they go as well, and they start producing radioactivity, and that keeps the planet warm and on the boil, um, which is important later. But the, earth, the surface of the Earth is nothing like Earth. It's, it's molten magma, all of it, and it keeps being smashed into by other planetary bodies um, during a period called the period of heavy bombardment, which is a marvellous understatement. Um, during one um, one particular episode, uh, a planet the size of Mars smashed into the Earth, a kind of glancing blow, and squeezed off most of the Earth's crust into space. And that coagulated to form another world, the Moon, which is why the Moon... Is quite large for a satellite of a small planet such as ours, and why its composition is pretty similar. Now, most moons of most planets are rather different from the parent planet because they've usually been, they usually captured asteroids from somewhere else. But the Earth's moon is rather, rather strange and unusual. But then, what happened? The, the atmosphere of the infant Earth, still being bombarded with stuff, is full of. It's an unbreathable fog of methane and hydrogen and water vapour and rusty bikes and half-eaten pork pies and brass bedsteads and all kinds of other stuff. And then what happens is the Earth slowly cools down and it cools down so much that all that water vapour can condense as rain. And it rained for millions and millions of years, even more than it rains in Seattle. And it rained so much that oceans were created. So after being a ball of molten magma, the Earth was a, a water world without Kevin Costner. It was just the water world. <laughs> and there were some comets, which are icy, which came in and added a few bit more water and some exotic carbon compounds. Mm. Um, but the Earth was still pretty heavy. The Earth was still pretty um, active. And as a result of all the heat coming up, it's just like having a a, a pan of water on the stove, you get these convection cells coming up. The heat bubbles to the surface, spreads out, and then moves down again at the edges. You get these kind of uh, convection cells uh, in the molten rock in the earth. Now, all the molten rock in the earth is kind of gloopy but dense, but on the surface, as the earth cooled, the crust formed. On the surface of the earth, the crust formed, and this was a kind of souffle-like froth as light elements, oxygen, silicon, and aluminium, which basically make up most rocks. But because of the heat, they'd be, kept, they'd be slowly pushed apart and, and subducted back in and then glommed together again. And that was the beginning of plate tectonics. So mm. you get this ocean above, all these jets of magma still coming up through into the ocean and bubbling out, and water at the edge of tectonic plates being subducted into the mantle to produce this. And it was in this chaos and disaster that life began. Now, this is pretty much making stuff up, but there are people who've got a good idea of how life could have begun and the most likely now, Charles Darwin yeah. speculated that life could have started in some warm little pond somewhere. He didn't say this in any of his books. It was just in a letter to someone else. But actually, the warm little pond 
was, you know, if this was a warm little pond, it was a gothic death metal warm little pond. <laughs> it was a it was a superheated hydrothermal vent at the bottom of the ocean where mineral-rich water gushes out at 300 degrees, but it's still water because it's superheated and saturated and at pressure. Um, and then you get all these rocks that are crystallising and condensing out because it gets to the cold water and it just condenses out. And all the rocks are full of little holes. So what life life started as little scummy membranes that formed across microscopic holes in the rock where some of the minerals landed they, because of the convection, because they became turbulent, they they lost their speed and dumped their minerals in these tiny microscopic holes in the rock, which act as kind of catalysts for chemical reactions. So life began as little scummy, soapy membranes across tiny holes in the volcanic rock, where things were more ordered and were calmer and chemical reactions could happen Mm. And slowly these little scummy membranes would bud off more scummy membranes full of chemicals. Um, and after for a while, scummy membranes of various sizes were all there were. But because of the chemistry in it, some of these scummy membranes had a chemical template whereby they became more like their parents' scummy membranes than they otherwise would have been. And then natural selection starts and then life happens. And this happened... Oh, not very long after the Earth actually formed. I mean, there are signs, more of a ghost of an echo of a passing smile remembered in a dream, that mm. life was around 4.1 billion years. And it's the tiniest bit of evidence. It's almost romantically tiny. Uh, there's uh, crystals of zircon bit like cubic zirconia in, you know, flashy rings, but microscopic. And this zircon was a mineral worn away from a rock that once existed, but has been completely eroded away. And inside this tiny zircon is a little smut of graphite, like pencil lead, that shows a little bit of just subtle chemistry that it was made in a living organism. So, so, you know, inferential. So, um... Uh, so life began quite soon after the Earth was formed, and but it took That's a long amazing. time to become established. But when it did, oh boy! I mean, there's evidence quite disputed for macroscopic life. You know, bacterial uh, uh, scuts of slime like you see on uh, your pond, uh, about three point seven billion. But that's quite disputed. But the the earliest life for which everyone agrees is about 3.5 billion. And by that time, living organisms were making reefs, that, you know, reefs of bacterial slime that you could see from space if you were a little alien on a spaceship passing by. Um, and by that time, life had spread from the deep depths to the sunlit surface layers of the ocean. I mean, it had arrived. Amid all this chaos and tumult, life had arrived, and it arrived pretty quick. And once mm. it got to the, once it arrived, it was very hard to get rid of. But that's that's what happened. That was the very earliest days of the of Earth. So what happened then that's, was the king. Mm, sorry, carry on saying you've got to oh, you've got no, to physically was, interrupt uh, me, Shane. Otherwise, I'll just no, continue until no, I fall I over. No, I shouldn't even interrupt you. I was only going to interrupt you to say that that's that's one of the more wonderful descriptions that I've I've heard, and I've, I've read many uh, many takes on it, and and. Uh, 
many descriptions of the origin of life on on earth here Whoa. do you do do you do much public communication or like, uh do you do public speaking often uh, not not much i mean i have done uh in the past i do go and i give this you're, talk you're very good at this and it's uh, well thank you i do it from time to time um there's this talk i give about the unknown which is to extol the philosophy the philosophic view of a person whom I think posterity will see as the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, and that was Donald Rumsfeld. Wow, what a guy. What a guy. <laughs> His classification of knowledge into known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns gave me a whole lecture. Wonderful. Um, yeah. And uh, so there's that. And I go to talk to scientists about nature, and uh-huh. um, sometimes I give talks at science fiction conventions and uh, and other things, but I do, in, you know, I, I do like the sound of my own voice, so it's quite difficult to get me to shut up. I, 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 I love it. No, you you have a you have a way with words for sure. So I, I mean, I, I just it, that is, it, I just wanted to take a moment to appreciate because you you've mentioned this a couple times, but that that is mind blowing just how quickly after. I mean, I guess it's a little bit hard to quantify exactly when we we call Earth Earth, I suppose. Um, but uh, but but how how long after that that life started? And clearly, there's a there's plenty of planets that don't have life, have probably never had life on them. And is this just uh, was this just the this Goldilocks scenario of just the the best case scenario, the distance, uh, the right distance from the sun. What what made Earth so special compared to the other planets in our solar system? In our solar system, uh, well, in our solar system, yeah, it was probably the distance from the sun. But then the Earth has probably moved all over the place uh, mm. during its time, and the Earth's orbit isn't particularly circular and it's not actually stable over the long term no planet's orbit is um but at the time it had the right mix of chemistry uh it was about the right distance from the sun but then you know the right distance from the sun the sun was much less bright then than it is now uh the sun has been slowly brightening uh, and the planets have been changing uh mars might have had some life an awfully long time ago People think people used to think Venus might have life, but it's now probably never did. But outside our solar system, I think it's I, I reckon life, simple life certainly is very common. I think it's kind of inevitable yeah. on rocky planets with atmospheres. I mean, it might not be life as we know it, Jim, but the living things seem to be a natural progression of planetary formation, uh, given that life happens so quickly and seemingly inevitably. Of course, the first living things we'd hardly notice as living, they were kind of self-reproducing chemical systems and probably not very good at it. Um, And, you know, if they were around today, we wouldn't notice them as living, probably. Um, But these kind of uh, chemical systems, these self-replicating chemical systems, I think are pretty common in the universe as a whole. Um, Mm. Whether it gets any more uh, complicated than that, is another matter. But one of the things about life that I said was once it um, it appears, it's very, very, very hard to get rid of. And one thing I discovered when writing my book was that if life had a motto, 
it would be whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger because the response of life to life was born in chaos and tumult and whenever chaos and tumult comes along you know there's a lot of life becomes extinct but life as a whole and i'm not trying to personify it but life as a whole says goody we're going to evolve something to combat the latest brouhaha and the, the one of the biggest brouhaha's happened about two and a half billion years ago it was called the great oxidation event uh when for reasons that people don't really know the earth which had had almost no oxygen uh, in the atmosphere suddenly had quite a lot and then it died down a bit and there was also it was probably to do with tectonic activity with all rock new rocks coming out of the earth and that's had a lot of influence on life because what happens when you get tectonic activity is you get new rock thrust above the surface. And new rock is very good at one thing, and that's absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Now, we're all very concerned about carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, but back then, all this new rock absorbed the carbon dioxide, which allowed the oxygen to accumulate. But of course, what, uh, what we know is carbon dioxide is very good at the greenhouse effect. And so without the greenhouse effect, the earth cooled. And because the sun wasn't very hot, an ice age happened. The ice age covered the entire Earth. It turned into a ball of ice, and it lasted for 300 million years. Now, anyone lesser than life would have just given up and gone home, but life evolved by becoming more efficient and leaner and meaner. All these little bacteria that had been living in a free-for-all soup exchanging genetic material and, uh, you know, bacteria are very gregarious. The, the waste products of one bacterium are the meal of another one, and they all live together. So what they did as a result of the Great Oxidation event was they turned that group living to another level. Bacteria accumulated to become the first nucleated eukaryotic cell. So there was an, one bacterium became the nucleus, that was an archaeon. Another little bacterium became the mitochondria, you know, the little pink power packs that, that produce energy. Uh, the little green blobs, the chloroplasts, they came from uh, various kinds of bacteria. And the thing about the eukaryotic cell, it's just like with each part was, spe was specialised for what it does best. It's pure Adam Smith economics. It's um, you, get, you, go, you get more bang for your buck if you have factory workers working in a factory and each one does one thing rather than everyone trying to do everything all at once. So um, the eukaryotic cell allowed life to become much more efficient and go further and do more with less than if it were a bacteria. And that's how it reacted to the great oxidation event. Um, now the ice age went. Um, and uh, then there was a period which uh, geologists who only get out of bed for truly apocalyptic events called the Boring Billion, where no, nothing much happened. But actually, a lot happened. Um, these little cells slowly, slowly found you could get even more efficiency by getting together into groups of cells and become multicellular. And you have some cells specialising in feeding, some cells specialising in reproduction. And you started to get simple fungi and simple seaweeds about a thousand million years ago. Um, and then some more ice ages happened. Now, they lasted a mere, a mere trifle of 80 million years, and they covered the whole earth. But then there was more land then for carbon dioxide to weather, but then the sun was that much hotter, so the ice age didn't go on for as long. 
Mm. And that created animals. It was from that that the animals began. Now, I tell this entire story I've told you, I get up to about page 14. That's, that's as long as it tells the tale. And, and at the end of page 14, I say, life entered the lists as a range of peaceable seaweeds, algae, fungi, and lichens. It emerged tough, mobile, and looking for trouble. For if life on Earth was forged in fire, it was hardened in ice. So I call this chapter a tale of a song of fire and ice. See what I did there? That's yeah, a little Game of Thrones reference. So um so that's the beginning of life up to the exciting bit, which is where animals um come onto the scene about five hundred, six hundred million years ago. But now, this I realised from a book by Peter Ward and Donald Brownlee, which I wouldn't read if you want to have a good night's sleep. It's called The, the Beginning and End. Oh, I can't remember. The Beginning of End of Planet Earth. Anyway, it tells you how Earth is going to evolve in the future. Yeah. And over the biggest, most panoramic scales, there are two things that govern life on Earth. One is the, the sun, which is increasingly bright, and the other, which is carbon dioxide, of which is declining. Um, mm. You know, we've got too much of it at the moment, but a lot of life on Earth is to do with the ups and downs, but mostly the downs of carbon dioxide. Mm. Um, and it's these two things interacting that have, have dictated life's reaction to the varied climates. Now, we talk about the Goldilocks zone, but Earth during its life has been a ball of magma, a world of water, an ice ball, and at various other times, a jungle from pole to pole or a desert or all sorts of other things. So there are many changing faces of the earth and life has evolved and it's been nearly wiped out several times, but um, has always hung on and its response has been to become more complex. Mm. So uh, that's that's the theme of this uh, book. What what were some of the bigger times where th that life came the closest to no longer existing on Earth? Well, that um, well, there were two. One was so remote that we don't even know about it, and that was when uh, early bacteria were learning how to split, um, so to work to to split energy from chemical reactions by using sunlight as a uh, as an energy source. Now, um, lots of bacteria can do this by reducing iron or sulfur compounds, and that's still done today. But the best way is to reduce, is to split the atoms of water, split hydrogen from oxygen. Now, unfortunately, for a biosphere that evolved completely in the absence of oxygen, this reaction produces free oxygen, which is the most toxic lethal, one of the most toxic and lethal substances in the universe. And that wiped out most life. But it's, of course, it was so long ago, we have no much evidence for it, just a bit. But the, the mm. one for which we have most evidence happened 250 million years ago. That was the great dying. It was before the age of the dinosaurs. And <clears throat> that was called the, the end Permian mass extinction. And that wiped out about three quarters of all life on land and 95% of creatures in the, in the sea wow. over a period of about, you know, less than a million years, certainly probably a few tens of thousands. Um, it didn't happen all at once. That would have been too merciful. It was a, a toxic agony that went on for quite some time. 
And again, it was a kind of perfect storm of all sorts of things coming together, which each one on its own might not have been quite as catastrophic. I mean, at the time, the continents, the continents, there's a breathing to the continents. Sometimes they all glom together into a supercontinent. And then when they've done that, they start to split apart. And then after a while, they come together again. And this is a cycle that lasts about half a billion years. Now, about 250 million years ago, the Earths were coming together into a great supercontinent that had all major land masses called Pangaea. Now, the problem is for life in the sea and life near the land on the continental shelves, which is where most life happens, is once you glom a lot of small continents together to make one big continent, you get less margins overall around the continents, and that increased pressure on living space. And another thing was, due to various factors, there was a general decline in plant life. There wasn't much free oxygen in the atmosphere um, as there had been earlier. So breathing at sea level would have been trying to breathe at high mountains today. Mm. So there wasn't a great deal of oxygen and everything was gasping. And so life was just hanging on. And then what happened, there was a huge volcanic eruption happened in South China. Now, South China was one of the few bits of land that wasn't attached to Pangaea. And it was a kind of land, land that time forgot. It had creatures which then were antique and these amazing, you know, tropical forests. And these were all wiped out. By this, it became a huge, like, super volcanic uh, Yellowstone nightmare, uh, releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and acidifying the oceans and blah, blah, blah. Life had just recovered from that when a few million years later, an even bigger one, its big brother, came up in Siberia. And that turned the whole of Siberia well, an area equivalent to the continental United States all the way from the eastern seaboard to Denver to the Rocky Mountain Trump, an area that big was covered in basalt and volcanic rock. And that produced more carbon dioxide and mercury vapour and acidified the oceans. And because life was already under stress and plants couldn't absorb the carbon dioxide because plants were already under stress, the temperature soared, uh, the coral polyps died, and broke off, so there was nowhere for the marine creatures to hide. Um, plants on land were just scorched to their roots by acid, so all the plants washed the sea, all the soils washed away into the sea, the sea became stagnant and, and, and anoxic, and it generally became rather unpleasant. Um, but life recovered. It took a while, but life recovered. In the Triassic period after that, it blew a... It blew a defiant Bronx cheer to um, the Earth because the life in the Triassic was the most amazing carnival of weird creatures, reptiles of all sorts, that <laughs> there ever have been, of which the dinosaurs was just one of many incredible groups. Can you expand so on that? that? the great dying and the aftermath. Well, about the dinosaurs, about yeah, the Triassic. Yeah, 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 oh. uh, yeah, yeah. Well, the Triassic had, um, the Triassic period, well, a lot of life had died in the, Permian. And the Triassic was very uh, um, special to us because life sort of as it lives now evolved in the Triassic. The first frogs were a Triassic, the first turtles, the first mammals came in the Triassic period. But there were all sorts of other reptiles. There was the most amazing number of marine reptiles. Uh, also, all sorts of amazing reptiles learned how to fly. Pterosaurs, 
the pterodactyls evolved in the Triassic. And there are all sorts of other really weird flying creatures um, uh, in the Triassic. Um, and there are all kinds of crocodiles of various sorts and animals that were a bit like crocodiles, and some of them were bipedal, uh, and uh, they ran around. And the dinosaurs were just one rather minor group of these Triassic crocodile-like reptiles. I mean, they were there, but they weren't very prominent. I mean, for quite a long time, uh, they were, you know, they, they were kind of a, the, the second violins of the reptile orchestra, you know, behind the star soloists. Um, and that's where they would have been if it hadn't been for the slow decline of various other reptiles, you know, herbivores and dinosaurs came in. And then another extinction, the Triassic end mass extinction, which was which wiped out a lot of other things and pretty much left as reptiles the dinosaurs blinking at all this world that they'd suddenly inherited. So and a good friend of mine, Steve Broussat, has written a fantastic book called The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. And he says there's nothing actually very special about why did the dinosaurs, you know, evolve and inherit the earth, whereas other animals, of which there were huge amounts, uh, didn't. And it was probably a matter of luck and being in the right place at the right time mm. um, that they did it. But um, the, tri the Triassic period, I mean, I've got a chapter called Triassic Park. Uh, I think the Triassic is, because the dinosaurs originated in it, I think the Triassic is... Uh, uh, doesn't get as much press as it should because it was just the most phenomenal period. Ichthyosaurs evolved, all kinds of swimming things and flying things, insects, all kinds of amazingly weird insects evolved in the Triassic that are now no longer with us. And, yeah, crazy it was, absolutely mm. crazy. The, it, it really, you know, this is, this is usually kind of as like – as close as I get to having a mystical or spiritual experience is, is when I, hey, is wow. when, when I, when I, when I hear about all of the, uh, all of the, um, it, it, the chance events and amazing complicated, uh, the, all the, the many steps along the way that, that made it so that we could be here today is, is just, I could, I could listen to this forever. It's, it's, uh, it, it really, uh, it really, it it does it it helps me appreciate the existence here even on even on my worst day when i when i can think about uh the the billions of years of just life on this planet that went into the the chance that we happen to be here is incredible and even i, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about because the actual the evolution of our knowledge about evolution itself has been really quick over the last few centuries where where it was i know at the time of of darwin it was kind of part of the part of the the problem being solved was like okay this idea of evolution makes sense but that for it to happen, the Earth would have to be so old, the working idea of it being 6,000, 10,000 years old or whatever at the time. And, uh, you know, talk of like, well, maybe if it was 60,000 years old, maybe that would be enough time for for these processes to take off. And, uh, you know, these are uh, these were absolutely revolutionary thinkers. And, and it wasn't just Darwin, but Darwinian thinking really upended uh, you know where 
uh, our understanding of things, our place in the in the on Earth and in the universe and our history, and uh, and I I kind of um, going back to I know you you said you kind of abandoned a bit of the detective novel ish uh, take of your your first draft of this book, but. Um, it, it, do you still touch on a bit of that with, within the book of, of how it, it, I'm sure there's a lot of, if I had a listener listening to this episode for the first time, had never heard a science podcast before, had never heard about ev- anything about evolution before and hear this beautiful, um, explanation that you give, I think a big question would be, well, how the heck do we know all of this stuff? Well, you know. How do we know? Well, knowledge is a very um, tricky concept, <laughs> but um, you know, you talked about the in the Darwinian t- times. You know, the you know before Darwin, you know, it had always been the working hypothesis that the Earth was no older than it says in the Bible. And why not? I mean, if that's all you know, if that's the only evidence you have, and then and then ten thousand years feels like a very well, long it time. Does, it, does, it, and it, is, it is to a human being, and uh, yeah. um, and then you've got some of the geologists who were looking at some of the early sedimentary rocks and thought, hmm, this has to have taken a long time to have sedimented and tried to make calculations and said it must have taken thousands, if not millions of years. And then Lord Kelvin, who was a physicist, did some basic back-of-the-envelope calculations and said, well, uh, we know the Earth started off very hot and cooled, and he worked out it would have taken 30 million years, um, which was immensely long, but people thought, no, it's got to be longer. But, of course, he didn't know about radioactivity it's a lot of the radioactivity in the Earth's core that keeps the Earth warm, so it takes a longer time to cool. So more and more discoveries came along to give us more time to play with, so more time in which things could happen. And then, of course, there came, only in quite recent years, you know, because of radioactivity, the whole idea of radioactive decay is that you can actually measure when new volcanic rocks crystallized and when they formed and so you can get a chronology of of the time now back in the age of the pioneering geologists they only knew which period came before what and each period seemed to have its own group of plants and animals what they didn't really realize was there's usually a, a mass extinction at the end of each period and that's why the ones in each period look different and also because a lot of the rocks eroded away so if there was gradual change, you wouldn't see it. It would just look like a jump from one to the other because all the intermediate ones had disappeared because fossilization is a very unlikely, chancy process. Mm. But it's only gradually that um, people have had the, the, um, the uh, techniques to show that the Earth and Moon system evolved, uh, happened about 4.6 billion years ago. Now we have moon rocks to to corroborate this on and there's now this space mission going to the trojan asteroids around jupiter believed to be some of the most pristine unchanged um, bodies in the solar system that could tell us a lot more about how old the solar system is mm. um but because of radioactive decay of, of various elements uranium into lead and thorium into this and blah and blah people have now got a good idea well, fairly good. Well, a, a good idea of the chronology and some idea of what was happening in terms of the Earth and the atmosphere and the oceans and the oxygenation of the atmosphere 
at all these times. And there was a lot of change happening, some of it very gradual, some of it unbelievably quickly. Um, but because of those little bits of tiny bits of evidence, and it's thanks to those millions and millions of tiny pieces of evidence that I've been able to put this story together. But it's still a story, and there's still a lot we're learning and still a lot of things that we're likely to overturn. And in fact, I've just seen a few papers since my book was finished that you know I'd like to put in and I'd like to say, ah, but something or other. Yeah, because yeah. although in the, in the main part of the book I'm telling a story, I've got loads and loads of footnotes and references to the papers, and I talk about the various controversies. But I didn't want to interrupt the flow of the book with those. Mm. I wanted those to be very much a way for those who really wanted to find more. But I wanted the story to be there to be enjoyed as a story. Mm. Um, you know, our stories. I mean, uh, I, I'm trying not to be very pompous about this, but I, it could be like a creation myth for our times, if you see what I mean. The yeah, scientific yeah. creation myth for our times. Because in a sense, it is kind of mythical because it's based on what we know at the time and all kind of stories people have in the past were based on what they knew at the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, the earliest problem between correlation and causation started when one Aztec said to another Aztec, I'm bored of sacrificing people every day <laughs> and ripping out their still beating hearts just so the sun can come up in the morning. Do we have to keep on doing this and the other would say well you're going to risk it and have the sun not come up in the morning <laughs> and um, eventually somebody found that you could have the sun come up in the morning and you didn't have to kill anybody to achieve it and we slowly our magisterium the, the 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 realm of knowledge increases so we get better ideas of what's going on but still yeah there's so much to discover um, and I love the idea so of just things, a, yeah. a, a procrastinator being being the one that put the end to human sacrifice. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a bit old for that now. I mean, not human <laughs> sacrifice, but, you know, I used to be able to procrastinate like a good one, but now I just can't get around to it. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so, so many of these, these things are, uh, I mean, evolution was uh, kind of counterintuitive, I, I think, you know, influenced by observing livestock and seeing things being selected for in real time probably helped clue people in uh, a yes. bit more. But even the idea of things that we really take for granted now, like the idea of extinction, which is there, there was a there was a time when people didn't that was a contentious issue. They didn't believe that extinction was was such a thing that could happen. I, I think uh I think Thomas Jefferson, when he when he found uh, he found a bit of a naturalist in his own right, when he found mm. the Jefferson sloth and this this yeah, huge skeletal thing, Philly, yeah, <laughs> and and um, they they didn't know it was extinct. So he, and and I I think a lot of people didn't even believe extinction was a thing at the time. So no, he'd be like, true. well, hey, look out for this thing, Lewis and Clark. There's well, exactly, this some enormous. Exactly. Lewis and Clark, exactly. Thomas Jefferson said to Lewis and Clark, go forth and find mammoths still walking about. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the earth hadn't been explored, and, and that was a good reason. I mean, the, the person who who really um, uh, thought extinction was a thing, well, extinction was thought to be rather a dirty word. I thought God, in his wisdom, um, right. wouldn't have had extinction. Why create a beautiful creature just to snuff it out? I mean, it seems to be an awful waste. Um, 
but it was a, a French scientist, Cuvier, who um, excavated fossils in the Paris Basin that were Eocene, what we now know as about 50 million years ago, some early mammals. And he said, come, 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 all these forms, they can't possibly, there's so many, they can't possibly all exist now. And it was he who came up with a revolutionary idea of extinction, that there were creatures on the earth that no longer exist. Um, yeah. They were, uh, maybe Noah's flood wiped them out or whatever, but they're no longer here anymore. Yeah. So Lewis and Clark could look for mammoths all they like, but they just don't look for them. They're not there anymore. Um, yeah. They might find all sorts of other interesting things, but the mammoths are dead and gone. But, of course, having said that, extinct animals do still turn up. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, there was the coelacanth, this sort of strange antique fish that thought to have been extinct in the time of the dinosaurs until a recently dead a recently dead one turned up in South Africa in 1938. That, uh, that, that, that happens once in a while. Well, you know, that's as revolutionary as finding a carcass of a velociraptor on the side of a roadside in Mongolia. I mean, it really <laughs> yeah. is uh, yeah. like that. And um, uh, even now, you know, the Earth... We tend to think that there's so many people on the earth and we've shaken every tree and looked under every rock that there is and there is still a lot of animals and plants and creatures that haven't been described and are still being described. But even now you find animals that have never been known to Western science that are not tiny but big enough to do you an injury if it stepped on your foot. Uh, and there's this gigantic ox thing called the Saola that lives in on the Laos-Vietnam border. Now, I first heard about that when people sent me a paper in Nature describing the horns and some skin of this found in a hunter's hut. It was like Victorian zoology. I thought, this is brilliant. This is 1992, and we're getting descriptions of, you know, recently dead creatures from far away. And only recently have people actually found, even the people who live locally, who knew they were there before the scientists did, hardly ever see them. And these are big, big creatures, but they go out of their way to go out of their way. Mm. Um, they must be in danger. There can't be many of them, but they're hardly ever seen, and they're quite big. And every so often, some new kind of beaked whale gets washed up somewhere, but beaked whales live all of the time in the open sea, almost never come to land or anywhere near land and often live in the deep sea and hardly ever come to the surface. And there are parts of the ocean floor we know less well than the surface of Mars. So maybe it's my romantic Professor Challenger, Challenger side that I still think there's, you know, there's quite a lot about the Earth that we don't know and there's probably quite a lot of strange creatures there mm. that we don't know much about, um, yeah. especially in the deep sea. Uh, there's it it's it's really interesting when there's these um uh, these these ways of understanding that really upend things so much but if you if you think about either of the examples so far of either evolution or extinction where where it was like oh okay maybe Maybe there's a little bit of evolution going. There's, you know, talk of centers of origin early on of, of uh, like, okay, so you have these kind of prototypical 
uh, species and then and then things split off from them or degenerated in certain ways and that explains more the uh, the diversity there's so that maybe there's a little bit of evolution okay maybe a couple things go extinct and then you find <laughs> oh not only are these things not rare they are in fact the norm <laughs> there's there's yeah. actually way way they're the majority there's well, <laughs> evolution's everything and extinction there are more things have gone extinct than oh yeah <laughs> about 90, 99% I mean the late paleontologist Dave Raup said at a first approximation there isn't any life on earth because <laughs> yeah. 99% of all things are extinct um uh, so uh, uh that's what happens and um yeah. some things go extinct more than others i mean mammals live fast and die young mammals of which we are one mm-hmm. uh, mammal species tend not to hang around for more than a million years before mm-hmm. going extinct for one reason or another um there tends to be there tends to be some feature of the animals themselves that tends to predispose them to extinction. Or well, animal, mammals evolve quickly; they uh, arise quickly and die quickly. Yeah, is uh, that is that what what's going on with the um, the kind of the explosion of diversity that happens? With is it is it that is it that mammals are more mobile and they, I mean, you have, you have sexual selection going for you as well. Uh, you're swapping out 50% of your genes. You're able, you're able to go to more novel environments and, and break off and kind of adapt and create change faster than yeah, maybe well, things the that are stationary. The evolution, of, the evolution of sex happened in the boring billion. Obviously, yeah. geologists don't have sex a lot, so they're, they weren't very <laughs> interested. Um, and uh, uh, that basically swapped the kind of free-for-all that bacteria had, because bacteria swap their genes like people swapping trading cards in, in the school playground. You know, if a bacterium doesn't have a gene for antibiotic resistance, it can always pick one up from its neighbour. Yeah. But s- sex was a much more orderly mixing of genes to make a totally unique new individual. And um, actually the origin of sex is actually one of the big mysteries. Why actually only can go all to this problem of flowers and chocolates and dates and then only can only commit half your genes to the next generation? Uh, yeah. Why can't you just clone yourself and then all yeah. your genes will go to the next generation? Well, there are all sorts of ideas for this, and one is right. that it actually drives evolution. And uh, a, another very good idea is that once you start getting cells big enough to have small cells inside them, you invent disease and parasites. Yeah. And um, uh, uh, so the evolution of sex was possibly a mechanism to increase genetic diversity to keep one step ahead of parasites and diseases. Kind of swapping Um, the locks on the immune system. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, and there's some intriguing work with with mice that the uh, mice tend to choose their mates by scent. Mm -hmm. And the the correlate is um, breakdown products of what's called the MHC system, and these are proteins created by a whole slew of genes which allow self non self recognition mm. and are based and basically go towards the immune system so basically mice choose their mates to be as different from them as possible in terms of their mhc mm. so 
Um, if that's generally true, that could give an idea that sex and sexual selection evolved as a way of keeping one step ahead of parasites. Yeah, um, the the, the uh, what is a major hip, hippo compatibility? Yeah, yeah, your major histocompatibility. Uh, histo yeah. And, and yeah, uh, immunologists like to make things very difficult. It's the major uh, histocompatibility. Yeah, yeah. There, there's the, a guy called Dan Davis who writes great books on evolution. And he wrote one called the I can't remember what it's called now. Anyway, look up Dan Davis. He writes amazing books on immunology and he mm. gets a medal. Just He gets two out of five stars just for writing intelligible books about immunology <laughs> um, because immunology is so tough. It's yeah. really so full of um, technical technicality. Um, yeah. oh, sorry, what's uh, his name again? I'm actually going to write that Dan down. Davis, the Dan compatibility Davis. gene. That's it. Look up the compatibility yeah. gene. But yeah. he's written other books since then. But um, uh, he's a uh, another Brit, but he's great fun, uh, mm. and uh, he talks about the origin of the immune system. Anyway, the, so basically that fuels diversity, but mm -hmm. then different groups of creatures tend to be more diverse, and they tend to explode in diversity usually when there is an opportunity. So the mammals evolved alongside the dinosaurs, and they evolved. Now, in those days, Pangaea was mostly a desert, really, really hot, a really hot desert. Mm. And the earliest mammals we know about lived in these hot deserts. I mean, it would have been too hot to touch these deserts. So they lived at night underground. They became very good at living in the dark, mm. underground and coming out at night. So mammals, unlike birds, were not very good at vision, but they were much better at smell and scent and taste and touch and hearing. Now, mammals evolved a hearing system with three little bones in the ear, and this evolved as a, as a consequence of them miniaturising and miniaturising the jaw, so bones at the back of the jaw got smaller and smaller and went into the ear. And as soon as the mammalian middle ear formed, a whole world of sound was open to mammals that no other animal had ever experienced. It was like they'd been fossicking around in a in a dark forest and they'd found a hole in the wall and they'd come out to see these amazing vistas of, of sensation and the universe. So the discovery of high-frequency hearing by mammals was a, a major, a major thing. I mean, What birds, an incredible advantage to, to yeah, well, have when, when well, nothing birds, else can do this. Well, well birds can hear quite high, but even children, human children can hear higher than birds can hear. Mm. Um, so many mammals, cats, dogs, birds, bats, whales, can hear incredibly high frequencies, much more than any other animal. Um, and this comes from our nocturnal ancestry, where our ancestors were very small, very furry, had fast-running metabolisms, and because they could keep themselves warm at all times of day, they would only come out to feed on insects at night when it was cold or very early in the morning. And because insects are cold-blooded, they were too sleepy to escape uh, the, the little tiny mammals. And because the mammals were very small, they tend to metabolise faster. Now, tiny mammals today have to, like shrews, have to eat their own body weight in insects every day with, to avoid starving to death. That's before it does anything else. Or has any other energy to reproduce or do the Times crossword or anything else it might want to do just to keep itself going. Mm -hmm. So these tiny mammals were living fast, dying young, evolving fast, and they were kept down 
by the dinosaurs because even though there were some mammals in the age of the dinosaurs that evolved to become as big as, say, a raccoon or a badger, and some of them ate baby dinosaurs, and some of them were gliding squirrels and things like that. But they evolved quickly, they died out quickly, and of about 25 different groups of mammals, only four survived the end of the dinosaurs' extinction. But when the dinosaurs went, the mammals suddenly diversified like cork coming out of a champagne bottle. They have done a sound effect to show this. But they diversified really quickly and, and became big and carnivorous and herbivorous and basically took over all the all the eco space that the dinosaurs had vacated. Mm. Uh, one of the most amazing stories is the whales. I mean, within eight million years, whales had evolved from things that look like dogs with very long toothy jaws into fully aquatic whales with flippers yeah. in eight million years. Um it's just, one of the amazing I, stories of I, evolution. I just uh, I just saw a, a picture recently of of, of the of a, a whale fin and uh, the the skeletal uh, remains mm. of the whale fin and and just it it just looks like a hand. Yeah, it does. Well, th this was one of the. Uh, it was actually this sort of thing that Richard Owen, Darwin's contemporary and adversity, ad adversary, he was the first curator of the what's now the Natural History Museum in London. Mm. He wasn't a very nice character, but he was a brilliant scientist. And Darwin sent all his uh, collections, or a lot of them, to Owen to, to, mm. to describe from the voice of the beagle. And Owen wrote this book called On the Nature of Limbs, and he showed that all the limbs that we see from humans and bats to whales, they're all built on fundamentally the same pattern. Now, mm. Owen was not an evolutionist, but it was because of Owen's work that he provided a lot of basis that change does happen. Because if you were inventing a whale from nothing, you why would you do it with bones, the same bones right. that we have? Or why, if you're inventing a bat, why would you give it long finger bones and not just have a big wing sticking out the side? Yeah, yeah. In other what? words, if you were inventing a fish coming out of water, why give it these fins? Why just not give it wheels and it would make yeah. it much quicker? <laughs> yeah. uh, so, um, uh, so where can it? Basically, Owen showed, and Darwin provided a mechanism where we're all ultimately constrained by our heritage. Mm -hmm. um, so where we are all ultimately fish specialised for living in water of negative depth. That's basically, <laughs> you know, uh, Neil Shubin wrote about yeah. it in his book "Your Inner Fish." Um, uh, so. Uh, uh, and the longest view, we're like, you know, strange collections of bacteria walking about. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so as we uh, as we start wrapping up here, I've, I wanted to you. You mentioned that your book goes on to uh, discuss the next billion years of yeah. evolution on this planet. We, I, I love a good, I, I love a good uh, speculation on on <laughs> this show. This is one of my favorite things about doing this show is, uh, you know, a, a lot of the academics that I have on, much of the in much of their job, they have to be exceptionally careful about <laughs> what they say <laughs> and what they publish and getting everything so precise and replicatable. And on my show, you can just uh, you get to yeah. speculate and, and yeah, well. which you you need the ability to speculate and form hypotheses and stuff as well. To well, of course, with this one, you're we're never going to be around to see if it was true, right? Uh, so, I mean, right. We're I mean, feeling I'm, pretty I'm, safe. I'm, well, I'm I'm kind of used to this because I'm 
you know, I, I got out of being a professional scientist and got into journalism, and I read, I read a lot of science fiction. I've read a lot. I've written science fiction. So I'm quite happy with speculating based on the evidence we have and pushing it a little. And what I did was I looked back at what I'd written and I thought the major trends in the history of life on Earth, apart from the decrease of carbon dioxide and the increase in the heat of the sun, is that life responds to challenges becoming more complex. And they tend to be step changes in complexity. So it went from bacteria to the nucleated cell. It went from nucleated cells to multicellular creatures. And then what's happening now? What happens now is that organisms are beginning to become more social and becoming what's known as super organisms. So you have anthills, that have a queen ant at the middle, which is basically the reproductive cells with all the other ants doing the foraging. And there are some anthills that show distinct personalities different from other anthills. There's a, uh, a scientist called Deborah Gordon, who's I think at Stanford, who shows that in times of drought, some anthills don't send out workers quite as often as other anthills. And these more restrained anthills are more likely to produce daughter anthills. So mm. there's cooperative living. And also you see creatures living together, different creatures living together, a bit like the first bacteria. So ants tend to farm little aphids to produce honeydew. And leafcutter ants farm fungi on the bits of leaves they bring back. And these are domesticated creatures. These They're like domesticates. And also you look at human social organisation, just in the past 10,000 years. Now, we're all specialised to butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, journalists, comedians, podcasters. Um, and you think to yourself, if you were cast up on a desert island, how much could you honestly recreate the kind of life you have now? You depend so much on other structures mm -hmm. to keep yourself alive. Um, uh, Edward O. Wilson, you know, the great pioneer of social biology, wrote a kind of, it's not so much as a science book as a kind of tract called Social Conquest of Earth. And uh, from that, he gives the idea that, that there, is a, there is something to do with social life becomes successful. There is successes associated with social life. Um, so what I thought was in the future, because there'll be more challenges, we're still in the middle of a load of ice ages that won't finish for another 30 million years. And then they will finish and there'll be more continental drift. There will be a tendency for more social organisation. Mm. So plants and fungi, which also have a mutual organisation, will group together with insects for pollination because carbon dioxide will be getting scarcer and scarcer, the insects, rather than pollinating the flowers, will actually live inside the plants and live their entire lives inside the plants and mm. feed and produce the carbon dioxide that the plants need. Um, this already happens in some creatures like fig wasps. When you eat a fig, it isn't a fruit. It's actually the house that the fig creates for the little wasps that live their whole entire whole lives inside it. The wonder is that you don't get a mouthful of wasps when you eat a fig. Yeah. So, um, uh, so there will be more and more organisation, more and more social life as animals glom together into until the last days of the earth in about a billion years' time. Life will be a great mixture of a complexity we can hardly imagine mm. between animals, plants, fungi, bacteria, and like fungi spreading its threads throughout the Earth's crust. Now, in 250 million years' time, 
there will be another supercontinent. Pangaea is still is still breaking apart, but it'll start to come up, come back again. In 250 million years' time, there will be another supercontinent. People seem to agree that there will be. They can't agree on what, what it would look like, but it would be ringed with huge mountains. There would be – it would be very desert, and you probably wouldn't see any life on the surface because it would be too hot. There might well be life underground, and there'll be life in the deep sea, and it'll be simpler and colonial – simpler in some ways, but more complicated in others. It'll be colonial. There'll still be life around the deep sea smokers where life originated. And then you go further in time to 800 million when there's been another supercontinent cycle. About the supercontinent cycle, my friend Ted Neald wrote a fantastic book called Supercontinent, all about the supercontinent cycle. And he assures me, and it's true because I read it, that it's not about pelvic floor exercises, so people are worried about that. But the last and greatest supercontinent will be in 800 million years' time. It'll be the last supercontinent that the Earth will ever have because life will have been declining because of the heat of the sun and the lack of carbon dioxide. Life will be deep, deep, deep underground and also around hydrothermal vents. But then the Earth's radiation at the Earth's core that kept the Earth young and bubbling will have run out. So the great heat engine that drives plate tectonics will have stopped. It will be, it'll become more difficult because the Earth will be old and arthritic. It won't be able to do all this movement. It doesn't have the lubrication anymore that it had when it was young, mm-hmm. and it will stop. And then because plate tectonics stops, life will stop because there won't be the heat driving the Earth's, driving, driving the same climate and um, weather and disaster that kept life going in the first place. Without all of that, without all the tumult and disaster, life can't happen. Mm. Because, you know, there won't be the chemicals coming up from the ocean floor, which the ocean floor life depends on, and they'll sputter and die. So in maybe a billion years' time, life on Earth, which has found every ingenious trick to keep going, no matter what the Earth has thrown at it, will finally die out in about a billion years. Mm. Now, there'll still be the Earth going on and on until Mm. it gets consumed by the red giant sun. Um. Now, what happens after the Earth, after life becomes extinct? I only touch in a footnote that, you know, looking at what Peter Ward and Donald Brownlee have said, um, at some point the sun will get so hot that the oceans will boil away. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, one of two things can happen. One is if the oceans boil away really quickly, the Earth will become just a dry husk like the moon. Or if they don't boil away quickly enough, there'll be a super greenhouse effect. There'll be a thick atmosphere like Venus, and it'll be hot enough to melt the crust underneath. So mm. either way, not very nice. And uh, <laughs> but life will have been life will have long gone by then. Yeah, fascinating. And human history, from the perspective of two hundred and fifty million years, human history will be just a layer of slime that might that will have shown future astronauts, if there are any that there was like something in, strange happened for a very, very short period in the middle of the great Cenozoic Ice Age and then stopped, and uh, but they couldn't quite work out. There are a lot of people on the Earth, but all, we all live at the same time, so I wonder if many fossils will be. We'll leave many fossils. Uh, what about hard drives or anything? You think we'll leave any hard drives behind? <laughs> um, well, 
again, my friend Ted Neal says that there'll be no sign of our life on the earth because it will have all been sucked into the crust. Right. It will all have been sucked into the crust and destroyed. I mean, the power of the earth can, you know, destroy all hard drive. But there will still be our scattered space probes on the moon. Mm -hmm. There'll still be Apollo 11 still there in a billion years' time Mm. because nothing much happens on the moon. Uh, There's no erosion. I mean, there are a few micrometeorites and, you know, radiation and that sort of thing. But because of the Earth is active and the Earth will, uh, because the Earth is active and will remain active, most of um, most of human life, all our skyscrapers and buildings and all the hopes and dreams and aspirations and palaces <laughs> of dictators and, and uh, ocean liners and aeroplanes will be crushed into atoms and yeah. hardly we would not, not know that anything was ever there at all. Yeah. So it kind of makes you think about the impermanence of human existence, really. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Fascinating. Beautiful. Well well said. You're you're such a great guest, such a great communicator. Well, thank you. Lovely um, of you to have me. I uh I want people to check out your book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth, four point six billion years in twelve pithy chapters, which at the time I'm releasing this, it will have just came out. What is it, November second or something? November ninth. Like November, November 9th. 9th. I'll make sure and release yeah. this right after that. It's, it's it's out it's out now in the UK and in German and in Dutch, but in the US and Canada it comes out on the ninth from St. Martin's Press. Cool. Well, I'll just make sure and put this out that that week so that uh, ev- everyone can order it right away. But I do want to say if you have uh, if you have so obviously um, uh, this is the book that uh, that listeners heard about and and hopefully are interested in check out. But if you have if you have books of yours that are if, if someone listening is like, OK, I'm going to get that book and I want one or two others of Henry's uh, books, what of of your whole catalogue would you recommend most? Well, uh, the one I'd recommend is The Accidental Species, Misunderstandings of Human Evolution, uh, which came out Ooh. in 2013 from the University of Chicago Press. So, um, and just for fun, I wrote a book about dinosaurs which I swore I'd never do. I'll just get it. It's um, sure. called A Field a field Guide to Dinosaurs. Well, it looks a bit like this. It's The Field Guide to Dinosaurs. Well, I wrote the text, and a brilliant, brilliant artist called Luis Ray did the amazing pictures. Uh, uh, Luis is half Catalan and half Mexican and he does his dinosaurs like they're going to the fiesta they're the most colourful, feathered, amazing dinosaurs and we had such a blast Um, but also I have my fantasy side and I wrote a book called The Science of Middle Earth Oh, fun All about explaining or speculating on what is really going on in... In, uh, with the ring and yeah and yeah oh i love that uh, I, I was, i'm i'm uh i'm a big fan as uh obviously i'm not alone in that are you excited about the new tv show coming out next year i, I am i am i must make sure i can get it my my daughter is um who's 21 keeps me abreast of all this sort of thing it was she who got me into game of thrones and and, and this sort Good of show. thing so 
Yeah. So, so we're we're looking forward to to all of that. Yeah, and, I think um, they're spending like fifty million an episode or something. So, no, I, well, I, I, I mean, I think they're going to knock days, it out of the park. Well, that's well, you know, after Game of Thrones, they've got quite a lot of production values to look <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah. Um, so, no, I'm certainly looking forward to yeah. that. I mean, I love the movies. I didn't love them totally uncritically, but I thought yeah. they were great. Yeah, I, I loved that at the time. Um, so. Uh, so I've done that. So so those awesome. are some of the other books that I've written. Fantastic. Henry G., thank you so much for joining me. Oh, let's plug. Uh, you have a website that you want to plug as well? Well, um, you can get me at a very short history of life on earth.com. Fantastic. And, and, uh, and you can find all my links to Twitter and Instagram and who knows what through that site. That's probably the best way of finding me. Love on it. Twitter, I'm at, at uh, the Twitter, I'm at end of the pier. Um, cause I live at a little seaside town with a pier. Oh, fine. Uh, um, and on Instagram, I'm Henry G 22, but basically go to a very short history of life on earth.com and you'll get everything from the contacts page there and lots of other places where you can buy the book and reviews and, and things I'm doing and what I'm up to. Terrific. And so on. And uh, I also want to thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a real fun one. Uh, Thanks again, Henry. And uh, uh, check out his books. And we'll talk with you more next week.